It's my honor to welcome legendary value investor, Mr. Guy Spear on the show. Mr. Spear is a managing partner of Aquamarine Fund, which is a global value-focused fund that aims to compound capital over the long run. In 2008, he made news by bidding 650000 with his friend, Mr. Monish Babrai, for charity lunch with Mr. Warren Buffett. His book, The Education of a Value Investor, has sold more than 40,000 copies. It's been translated into Hebrew, German, Japanese, and more. And he was kind enough to send us a copy. And uh, it's a must read for investors and non investors alike. And um, thank you for taking the time. And uh, you know, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Yeah, Siddharth. And it's a pleasure to meet you and to have met Paul and to learn, to share, share experiences with Paul and on um, great Greek restaurants in the New York City area. And great to learn a little bit about a region in India that I know very little about. So, yeah, thanks for having me. I hope I can be useful and helpful. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And, um, you know, I would like to sort of funnel the conversation more towards some of the questions that we get quite often from our investors. And uh, these are some esoteric concepts that seem to escape uh, most investors. And uh, I'd like to go over those and Perhaps we can yeah. So as long, as long as we understand, they, they they might escape me as well. So I'm just a, I'm just a student trying to learn along with everyone else. But uh, don't expect any final wisdom from me. I'm just a fellow fellow traveler, if you like. Well, um, so to begin with, I think you know the concept of intrinsic value. Um, that's been a very popular term in sphere of value investing, starting from Ben Graham to all the way to Buffett and beyond. You know, the idea that value of any intrinsic value of any business is the future cash flows or the cash flows that will produce throughout its lifetime discounted to present, that seems to be looser because we don't know what the cash flows will look like in most cases. So how do you approach that problem? How do you even uh, get a range of intrinsic values when the projections could be as far as six, seven, ten years out. Yeah, and I'll add to you something else that has been on my mind recently to make it even more difficult is that when we think of a, a you know, a projection of, you know, the, the, the intrinsic value, the discounted present value of future cash flows, that kind of assumes that we have a spreadsheet where we can plug in numbers for those future cash flows. And we know that we can't. It's going to be a range of numbers is, is the best that we can do. And uh you know, and, and then we can think of those ranges of numbers going out into the future and have different kinds of distributions. Uh, some of them might have a very clear and understandable distribution with, quote, narrow tails. But some of those numbers might have very, very fat tails or might even have negative consequences. So there may be versions of the future in calculating the intrinsic value of a business where intrinsic value is without a doubt zero uh and and i say say not negative it could be negative if you're in some way liable for the business's obligations which could be the case in an insurance business but um but how how do you come to you know so 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 just saying discounted present value it's not just that you know i mean i don't they're unknown in in multiple ways they're unknown and, um, you know, and then there are some investments where we can get to a very high degree of certainty, like a bond, where it's a, an obligation of a sovereign government, or we can get to high levels of certainty when it's uh, real estate. But the minute we're getting into further away from those, then we're starting to get into some really tricky waters. And 
you know, to even pile on on the importance and the difficulty of what you've raised is that I'm becoming increasingly aware that the tools that we were given at MBA, uh, MBA, which is kind of, quote, master's level study, this is no longer undergraduate, this is supposedly on your way to, in the academic world, a PhD, and masters, masters, I mean, the, the masters in golf is like a major, major thing. If you're a master golf player, that says a lot. But that we were taught with such insistency, like the capital asset pricing model, like figuring out a way to average cost of capital, um, the the um, the financial engineers behind those tools probably made some very significant errors in modeling the nature of the world. So yeah, so so your question is a very very good one, and um, like all good questions, it has no simple or easy answers. I think that the concept of intrinsic value, when Ben Graham was talking about it, was was a great concept because because the vast majority of the world were thinking about momentum and charting and all sorts of things that didn't relate the share price to the intrinsic value of the business. And, um, and so that was useful and we didn't have to get any more granular or well-defined on it. And now uh, the world has moved on. Anybody, I don't know very many people who are, uh, successful or serious about investing who are not uh, value investors, who are not talking about the intrinsic value of a business in one way or another. And so I think that you're right to put your finger on it. And it's a very, very difficult question to answer. And it may be that talking just about intrinsic value to oneself or to one's investors can no longer be the discriminatory place. Uh, so it was a factor of discrimination when most people weren't even talking about intrinsic value. But now that we are, everybody is talking about it, even to bring up the term is not worth it. And um, so what is the intrinsic value of a business that is growing at a higher rate than all businesses around it? Or what is the intrinsic value of a business that is growing at a lower rate than, say, business A that I've just described, but has zero probability of it being zero versus a business that is growing at a higher rate that has a certain probability of its being a zero and none of those factors other than kind of verbiage you know color that people give around it kind of accounts for that but there's no real way to kind of and so that so so there we go i've just restated your question in in yet more glorious technicolor detail and I think that having restated it, I don't think I have any simple answers. All I've really done is say, yes, that is a good question. And it is not an easy question to answer. So the way that I think that I uh, try to answer it for myself is, I'm, I, so, so actually, I, I can say that obviously, I don't want to buy businesses at above intrinsic value, whatever intrinsic value is. Uh, but I'm actually perhaps using other metrics to to try to decide whether I should own an investment or not. And those metrics are around, uh, if I own this investment, will I survive the next 25 years? I've survived the last 25 years. Will I survive the next 25 years? And so does this investment make my fund more anti-fragile or less anti-fragile? 
rather than trying to answer what is the intrinsic value and come to some number to say, does this investment increase the probability that I can compound at somewhere that is hopefully better than the S&P? Or does it reduce that probability, which is actually, to your point, not, a, well, there's intrinsic value certainly has a role to play because at some point, two private market buyers might try and come to a rational decision about how they, what value they should exchange uh, this business for. But, it, but it, actually, intrinsic value doesn't, doesn't have a lot to say about those kinds of things because in a certain way, the model is faulty. So I don't know. That's a non-answer answer. And just to summarize, because I've meandered a little bit, is that um, it's a very relevant question. It's hard to define. Uh, impossible to define because it, it it assumes a model of the world that is not the reality. And even if it was the reality, there's no way we could know. And um, and so my answer is that we have to be aware that that is the past of how people have looked at trying to get superior investment returns, but that the future in a world where everybody's looking at intrinsic value has to in, has to engage some other more subtle concepts like fragility or resilience or anti-fragility to use Nassim Taleb's words. Uh, and um, because there aren't any good answers to your very good question. I hope I'm doing okay, Siddharth. I hope this is a value to the listeners. Well, it is a tricky question. And uh, even Mr. Buffett defines it as, you know, if, if it's not a no-brainer, it's a no-go. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, look, you, you know, because uh, for the for the listeners or the viewers' interest, I, I got a copy of these questions beforehand, and I'm remembering here that, um, uh, you know, how far out is one willing to project these cash flows? And the obvious example, and, and I, I should have written this down beforehand, would be to compare a business that has very high and growing cash flows, but that we which we don't know we can't be with any in any way certain will be around. So maybe this is a chip manufacturer that happens to have a kind of chip that really, really works very, very well. But even internally, they have to decide, are we reallocating the wonderful profits that we're making to R&D to develop the next line of chips? Are we just going to send the cash back to shareholders? If we send it back to shareholders, then the probability that we stay in business as a competitive company goes way down, but at least the money got back to the shareholders. If we reinvest it, there's no guarantee. Now, a um, naive investor would come along to that company and say, oh, my God, look at the growth. Look at the enormous amounts of money they're making. This company deserves a really, really high multiple. Uh, but, but, there, but most analysts would agree that there's a non-zero chance that whether or not they reinvest their cash flows into uh, their chip making, into R&D, there's, there's a non-zero chance that they won't make it through to the next round of competition. Then, by contrast, you could have some company that is, um, you know, an, an example that is not in my portfolio, but is an interesting example where they distribute pool equipment and they're growing by not by sort of leaps and bounds like 20, 30, 40, 50% per year. Maybe they're growing at 7 or 8% or 10% per year, but they're kind of capable of and they have been doing it consistently for a long time. And, um, there's a kind of a very strong likelihood that people are going to want to use pool equipment. Uh, and so, um, and they're going to want more of it. Uh, so the, the, the confidence that you have in the cash flow. So I guess some people would just use a risk factor 
they just increase the discount rate on your chip company versus the pool distribution company. And um, maybe that is the right way to look at it. Uh, I think that my, what I've kind of like, in terms of rules of heuristics is to, the minute I get to any significant degree of uncertainty as to where the cash flows are gonna end up. So I don't wanna be in any situations where there's a non-zero risk of the cash flows ending up being zero and the value of the business at some point, like chip manufacturer, uh, being um, uh, being no longer valuable. And I want to constantly find myself in situations where no matter what the state of the world, there is some value to this business. And so it's not, you know, and I, so I'm just applying, applying a heuristic of there are places where I want to be and there are places where I don't want to be. In one of the conversations that I had, I talked about having a kind of a clear end point. And the clear endpoint has got to be with, and, and again, I don't have this thinking down as clear as perhaps it could be, but I don't know what kind of chips people are going to be using and whether ASMR or some other company is going to be the one who have the technology. But I know that even if, if you are the dumbest real estate developer, if the only rule that you apply is that you're going to stay in downtown Manhattan, um, you know, downtown Manhattan survived an attack on the Twin Towers. The real estate there is still valuable. Or, you know, if you just look at the transportation nexuses. So I'm trying to I'm trying to get to situations that look kind of like that. Um, and and so I'm trying to deal with the, the, the complexity that way. But in a certain way, what um, discounted cash flow does, and this kind of like a simplistic view of intrinsic values that assumes a way all of the things are actually really hard to think about. And the finance professors who've thought this through actually don't give us the tools to think through carefully how one deals with that complexity. And so we're kind of left on our own, which is not a terrible thing, sit up, because it means there are plenty of misvaluations out there. And what you tend to get is that, that, that there'll be the chip manufacturers and the equivalents of that that have very, very high valuations. And what you and I have to do is not think ourselves too dumb because you get the high valuation because it's got explosive growth and seems to be highly profitable, even though there's an uncertain endpoint. A whole bunch of analysts get enthusiastic. It's great to write about and the share price is bid up. And then what happens to you and me, Siddharth, is we go, am I an idiot or what? You know, I must be an idiot. Guess what? I don't like being an idiot. I think I'm just going to go and buy this thing. A bit like the, you know, the guy who convinces all these gold, these gold diggers that uh, gold's been discovered in hell, and and he posts that sign, and they all run to hell, and then uh, the gold digger kind of starts leaving, and God says, "Hey, there's all this space for you now," and and the guy says, "Yeah, but you know what? There might just be truth to the rumor," and he kind of disappears as well. Uh, so we we have to hold our cool and say, you know, them, and and part of what is is motivating those people who say bidding up the price of this hypothetical chip conduct chip manufacturer is that in a certain way their simplistic model of intrinsic value is hasn't been thought out in their minds and there's a there's a crowd of them who haven't really thought it out clearly and they're utterly convinced and the price obviously is a validating factor and then what you and i have to do is we have to go and say well where's the place where the opposite is happening and maybe it's in this products distribution business or maybe it's in some other business which has a much lower growth rate uh, but a far more certain endpoint 
And what you're actually buying is is not a cheap valuation, but you're buying the fact that you, you that it's, unless an asteroid hits the Earth or there's nuclear warfare that breaks out between all the major nuclear powers, your endpoint is one in which that thing is valuable. I don't know if I hope I've I hope I haven't rambled too much, and what I've said is kind of like got some kind of clarity. Great answer, and um, now that brings me to the next question that. Uh, we all sort of struggle as investors, which is sourcing ideas uh, that are high quality. Because um, you have all kinds of uh, this MOI and this, uh, you have screeners that are screening for quantitative factors, and then you have the 30 NEPs. So when you look at your investments that you made in the past, what has been for you the most, uh, I guess, profitable or uh, the most uh, useful source as an investor to find these ideas. Um, and so for the first thing you should, I should say is that, so if you look at my track record, um, what I can be uh, proud of is the longevity. So it turns out that 25 years is a long time to have survived. And even with the, in the least favorable comparisons, we're around 1% better than the, um, then, then uh, you know the S and P, which is a tough competitor to beat. Uh, so um, yeah, and it's, sorry, I my, I just did a brain freeze there. I know I was going to a good place, but I just completely forgot your question. Oh, filtering, yeah. So what was my point in saying that is that you may not, you know, I'm not sure that I'm the best example in terms of you know if you if your listeners discover what heuristics I use. Um, you know, you might want to follow the heuristics of Seth Klarman or Warren Buffett. You may may have far better heuristics. So, 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 why do I say that? I'm kind of advertising to you and the listener that the way you should take what I'm saying is that's an interesting example of how Guy Spear tries to solve the challenge, rather than taking it as prescriptive. Take it as an, as a case study rather than prescriptive. And um, I think that so my answer is all of the above, meaning there is no source of insight and information that one should shut out. And there's no type of insight of info that one should shut out. What does that mean? Um, if um, so, uh, so, so running stock screens, uh, um, reading through value line, reading research reports, talking to people, um, uh, you know, having a model of what kinds of businesses would work in one's portfolio and for doing a search for those kinds of businesses. My, my first point is, is don't shut out anything. And over and above that, don't pursue just one strategy. We don't know what's going to work. Uh, and even, Siddharth, if I do, did know, and even if I gave you that strategy, it might not work tomorrow or the day after. So the world is a changing place. We're not dealing with physics where the underlying physical reality doesn't change. We're dealing with our interaction as investors and as investment companies with a changing human environment where human behavior changes. So I think that, you know, in the same way that uh, life diversifies uh, the, the uh, biological genome diversifies you want to have multiple strategies and multiple resources available to you we are omnivores we 
the more different kinds of food we can subsist on, uh, the more likely it is that our species is going to survive. So um, we don't know what such strategy is going to work for the next 20 years. And so we better have a multiplicity of them. So, so I think that the more the merrier, literally. The, the next thing we can say is that resources are limited. So you can't pursue every single one to 100%. So if you're spending more time talking to fellow analysts, then you're spending less time running stock screens. And so that is obviously a far more difficult choice, which gets to, but, but I think that it's already progress to tell an intelligent, well-meaning, hardworking person to tell them, do not invest all of yourself into one search strategy. Have multiple, it should be multi-dimensional and um, it should be kind of like multi-layered. Some of them would be things that you would do in a room alone. So having said that, so then the question becomes, how does one acquire new strategies? So there may be a strategy out there, like maybe I should be running AR, um, artificial intelligence analyses that I'm not doing right now, for example, or uh, some kind of machine learning analyses that I'm not doing right now. So how do you acquire new ones and how do you allocate resources amongst the ones that you have acquired? And I think that um, uh, in, in that is that itself, the process by which one decides has to be intelligently updated all the time. So I think that that's good prescription. How do I solve the problem specifically in my case? Uh, what has become kind of has really, really helped me in an, an awful lot. I believe that it will lead to better decision making, or there's no guarantee of that. And has helped me to live a more structured, better life is that I've taken ideas from somebody called Tiago Forte, who runs an online course and has a book called Building a Second Brain. Uh, and ideas around spaced repetition. So this is an idea that originally came from Dominic Cummings, uh, who was one of the brains behind Brexit. It's not actually, he's not the originator of the idea, but, but the, the, um, the basic, so, so it's about having a process for me by which I ingest insight and information in, about the world and what I do with it. And so, um, you know, ideas, and this is a little bit from David Allen Green, getting things done. When ideas come in and thoughts come in of any way, shape, or form, we need a place to capture them. And um, whether that's a notebook, whether that's, uh, you know, so, so I, there's no, so I, I capture for your interest to get down in the weeds. I capture notes in a notebook. I capture them in a piece of software called Evernote. I capture them in a piece of software called Rome Research. I capture them in my CRM when it's around people, and I capture them with my team and with my assistant. So that you know, there's a, there's a there's a system of capture. Then, most importantly, there's a system of review. So there's the the confidence that once these investment ideas amongst other things have been captured, they will be reviewed. And then where the space repetition comes in is that you want to create a system for taking care of your future self, meaning ideas should flow into our minds and get intelligently redirected. Ideas, facts, thoughts, because the information about the world is coming in in a very unstructured, unordered way. 
you know, we're on the train and we have a thought because we see an advertisement for luxury good. And then we speak to a friend and they talk about some development in India and then an annual report arrives. And so, um, so how do I do that? I'm constantly sending stuff to my future self. And some of that simply involves piles of uh, papers related to what I've read in which I, so, you know, I have this uh, highly respected investment firm called Ironhold Capital who have sent me a report that they have done up on July 10th on Wix. It looks well-researched. It looks very, very well-written. And so I've been reviewing it. And um, that is kind of input that I'm now ingesting. So I get on this conversation to learn a little bit about how you, Siddharth, your and Paul's minds work. And I'm also integrating this with a with a insights of a friend of mine who works very deeply in the in the WordPress ecosystem and is a huge believer in the WordPress ecosystem. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's interesting because that's very different to Wix. I wonder if I can talk to him and put them together. Now, what I will do with this report is I will at some point I'll put it into a read uh, soon, sometime or later, and. Uh, so actually, the, the categories are now sometime later. And so now means like the next few days. So I might read it now, have some thoughts, scribble some notes onto the report uh, about how I might pursue this further, and then just put it into my um, now pile, which means I'll pick it up again in a few days. Or I might put it into like, like I've, I've reviewed Wix. It's not something I ever want to act on, and I don't want to update it right now. So I'd like to see it in a few months. I'll put it in a, in, a, in a pile that will come back to me in a few months. Or it might be, I don't want to see this for another year, but in another year, I do want to remember that these guys brought up Wix to me. So creating a system in a practical way by which things that are irre irrelevant or less relevant are coming back to you at a lower rate, but things that are more relevant are coming back to me at a higher rate. And so implicitly there, there are decisions about um, whether to run more screens, what kind of screens to run, what kind of people to talk to when. So uh, the search is, I would put to you, what is flows out of that is the inevitable and unfortunate fact that we don't have infinite resources and we have limited time, brain space, all those things. And so we have to discriminate what is the highest value to us but in the process where I am doing it, I'm trying to leave myself space for errors. So I don't want one discriminatory rule that is going to shut out information. Uh, the, the other thing that I think is extraordinarily important is the, the opportunity for review. So I come to a conclusion about Wix today. I will have some subjective evaluation of how confident I am in my evaluation of Wix. And when I want to see that, you know, I want to. I want to come back to my decision in three weeks, one month, five months after I've talked to X, Y, Z person. In which case, I might make a note on that person's CRM entry. Um, so my answer, actually, funnily enough, is a guy who's highly, I think, is better at theory than in practice, and I'm more in the world of ideas and the world of action. Is actually highly, highly action oriented. And so. I hope that that's helpful. And I think that maybe an analogy would be a hunter-gatherer in the jungle. You know, you don't want to tell a hunter-gatherer how to find the best berries. 
know, if you say, you know, what's he going to do? I mean, he's 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 going to be in the jungle. He's going to follow multiple different. He can only be in one place at one time, but it's going to be something to do with the sunlight, where the bird flew. Oh, he noticed this kind of plant. There's these kinds of animal droppings. So you want to kind of, and you and I in the jungle would know where what those what those things all signal. The more time they spend in the jungle, the better we're going to get at it. So, and and by the way, the reason for reviewing this is that um, you know then you know I'll see you know the, the second time I read it, another person may come up for me uh, that um, that I think oh actually this is a person to talk to about Wix. I mean, funny enough, just just throwing it open, I, I remember now that. Wix was originally an Israeli company, and so then my the thoughts come up to me: Are there, you know, are there people in Israel that are, are either close to the CEO or people who've worked at Wix who might have insights from the perspective of an employee that I might connect to? Uh, so multiple ways of advancing that agenda in order, well, kind of fulfilling this idea of on the one hand we want to pursue everything, and the same time we have limited resources, we can't pursue everything. But we can't rule out that even the most unlikely looking strategy is not going to yield good results. So we have to give those credit. We live in an uncertain world. Um, I'll leave you with one thought before I hand you back the mic. Again, forgive me for these long and rambling answers. Um, I and I've, I've used this analogy or this this memory multiple times. Um, General Norman Schwarzkopf, and I believe what was the first. Iraqi, the invasion of Iraq to, um, well, to, to throw the Iraqis out of Kuwait, they'd unlawfully seized Kuwait in the same way, by the way, that Russia seems to have unlawfully seized parts of Ukraine. And he was asked by the journalist, well, you know, we're just curious, so how are you going in? Are you going over ground? Are you, are you coming in by air? Is this, are these naval landings? And Schwarzkopf looks at the journalist and he says, we're doing all of those things. We're going over, under, around, you know, every which way. And so I think that, that that's kind of the approach. And I and forgive me, just one additional thing there. So, you know, you, Siddharth, or somebody in your shoes says, oh, my God, here I am. I've been entrusted with other people's money, my family's money. I want to take care of my own money. What do I do now? You know, and 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 where do I go for guidance? And uh, my word, if if you if if any if anybody listening to this, if this lands, if you're coming to me for guidance, is um, listen to me and other people, but uh, trust your instincts, but not too much. So trust your instincts, knowing that your instincts themselves are learning and may be fallible. But ultimately, this is an inner journey. Ultimately, you need to listen to the voice on the inside. So, if the voice on your in the inside is saying, "I need to run screens." And run screens, but don't overcommit to only running screens. Keep your mind open to other things. If the voice inside you says, I really need to attend this conference, then go and attend that conference. There's something for you there. It may not be what is advertised. It may be the person you meet in the corridor. It may be the insight you get from you know, the investor relations person at some company that you'd never invest with. Uh, but ultimately, the world is so complex and the uncertainties are so great that we really have to kind of have this kind of inner voice and outer flexibility, something like that. So mm -hmm. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that brings me to the, I think I would call it the essence of investing or maybe the most important 
one factor one can uh, think about, uh, which is the moat. And um, you've spoken about the economic high grounds that uh, certain businesses have or uh, certain types of real estate might have because of maybe the way they position, supply demand dynamics. Um, so my question would be, <clears throat> similar to how Mr. Buffett identified GuyQuest, this low cost insurance provider with less than 1% market share, I think well, at the time may be uh, investment. You've discussed economic high grounds in the past, uh, businesses that have wide mode, or it could be real estate, uh, well located in some area. Um, how do you come up with these insights or uh, ideas maybe regarding businesses? Is it a long-term process? Is it a just culmination of a whole lot of research and then that leads you to these eureka moments? Or uh, do you think about it in a structured way that you're looking to figure out the mode for maybe a particular business? So what, what does that approach look like? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to answer this in a way that is different to probably the way I would have uh, thought about it before. So just talking about moats for a second, you know, I guess, you know, we can start. I, I used to imagine that uh, a business which has higher margins and higher returns on capital, that is, I think most people would agree that that is the, an indication that a business has a moat. Um, uh, but then uh, one of the problems that those businesses have is that they have a large target for other businesses to go after. So when you have a very profitable business, then a lot of people want to get into it. And so that moat gets far better tested. Uh, and some businesses manage to survive in spite of the very, very um, juicy margins that people are looking to attract to themselves. There's some very unusual business that we all know of, like the, the soft drinks business, where in spite of very juicy margins, it's very, very hard for others to get into. But then if you look at the semiconductor idea that I was sharing with you, then then every man and his dog is going to be investing in um, you know, the knowledge and know-how to get into that business. Uh, we have a duopoly in the airline business, in the manufacture of wide-bodied airlines between Airbus and Boeing. and I think that it's a certainty that sooner or later, uh, the Chinese uh, aerospace industry is going to figure out how to make wide bodies jets, but that is an investment of decades for them to get into, but, but they're going after it in a major way. I think um, my thinking evolved into realizing that often it's a business that is less apparently profitable that has a better moat. And so uh, there's this concept of the pricing umbrella. And so if you have a business with high margins, then the pricing umbrella is pretty high up off the ground. A lot of people can try and get in underneath it. Whereas if you lower the pricing umbrella, there are less and less people who are short enough to get into it. So you get these businesses which don't appear all that profitable, or their profit margins are actually pretty low, but um, they have a very low pricing umbrella, and that gives them other advantages in terms of value for money. And the obvious example is Costco, but Another example would be CarMax or Walmart or various businesses that um, create a competitive moat in that way. I think that Warren Buffett loves those kinds of businesses, but there are there are businesses um, where I think that Warren has gone for a moat that looked like that, but it actually didn't turn out to be that way. The prime example in my mind is 
uh, NetJets, where I think that at this point in its development, he would have expected it to have a very, very wide moat. And uh, the way IT and online markets developed was such that you could be a relatively small player, but you could access ways to fill your um, your capital goods, in this case, an airplane. So plenty of competitors like FlexJet and uh, other names that, that compete very, very effectively with NetJets, and therefore NetJets does not have the great margins that they would have liked to have had, although I think that it's still a, a decent business, but not the very, very high mo wide moat business that he wanted it to be. Uh, another thought that comes to my mind is this, this concept of it's less important how wide the moat is at the point at which you invest as to the direction in which it's going is the moat getting wider or not. And I've been particularly motivated by investing in businesses where there's not much of a moat right now, but I can see down the road that the moat is certainly getting wider. Um, but, you know, the analysis may turn out to be wrong for all sorts of very understandable reasons. I think that, you know, because, because one of the, one of the things that people who talk about moats presuppose is that the world is that the world is an understandable place and that the data that we're receiving is accurate to what is actually going on. And I may have an insight about whether a company has a moat or the directionality of whether the moat is getting wider or not. And my conclusions, my facts may be right, my conclusions may be wrong, or my facts may be wrong. And therefore, the conclusions are inevitably going to be not trustworthy, meaning that the particular data that I've picked up, either from what I'm reading or from opinions of people, or I may be overweighting the opinions of certain people, should be underweighting them or, or correct weighting them. So um, even simply deciding on a concept of what is the moat and how wide it is and how we find it, we get into this area of enormous complexity and enormous difficulty, which in a certain way, Siddharth, comes down to me with this sort of like it's a, it's the nature of the human condition. And and one of the one of the ways I try to think about that is if we kind of do one of these zoom outs where we, you know, Paul's in New York City, I'm in London right now, Siddharth, you're in Bhopal, India. And um, but take any one of us and zoom out and until we see the whole city that we're in. And then we zoom out even further and we see the whole planet that we occupy. And we're just one set of eyes and one set of ears and one uh, brain. But, but yeah, and we, we're told that, you know, in a certain way, the, um, the, the brain is it something along the lines of there are more neurons in the brain or more ways in which the brain can interconnect itself than there are, than there are molecules in the universe or some kind of mind-boggling number like that. But it's still just one brain, and it's just still limited to the the inputs that it can receive. And so I think that we need to go about concepts like moat with an enormous amount of respect for the degree of uncertainty in which we're operating in, the degree to which we have to allow for that uncertainty in uh, our actions. So how does one uh, deal with that enormous complexity? I think that uh, my answer is to go back to some of the things that I was, it, it comes back to me around the search for better businesses. So uh, it's got to do with how I structure my knowledge of the world, how when I come across an interview with somebody who's going to give me insights into how competitive the 
um, streaming movie space is that I'm sort of like reminding myself to bring that up to myself at a later date. Uh, I think there's also this concept of uh, trying to make ourselves more central to the flow of information around the things that interest us. And so we don't have to know everything about everything, uh, but we want to become central in the areas that we choose to specialize. So I think the likelihood that I identify a wide moat business in the area of uh, personal medicine, for example, is far less likely than somebody who's an investment analyst who's based in the Boston area, because the probability that they're going to be central in a whole slew of conversations that are taking place around uh, personalized medicine is far more likely in a place like Boston. So what actions can I take to centralize myself in the information and the idea flow? So in a certain way, I can't be sure that my insights are right. Uh, I can't be sure that my facts are right. Uh, but as knowledge is and an, a, a consensus develops, about whether a certain business is good or not, is wide moat or not, whether it is actually wide moat or not, or whether its moat is growing or, um, or, or shrinking, can I be amongst the first to be in the possession of those insights, amongst the first to get the understanding and to draw the, to connect the dots between the data? What steps can I take to do that? And so uh, when we engage in actions like attend uh, John Miljevic's Manual of Ideas conferences or MyValueX, we attend the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, or we listen into this wonderful podcast uh, and uh, we listen to um, Greenwald's insights or we listen to what Scaramucci has to say, then in a certain way, we're making it more likely that we are central and, and to that idea flow. And, and that is a work of decades. So I, I'm pleased to be able to report to you, Siddharth and Paul, that on some level, it, you know, that, that much of the work is cumulative. The more work you do, the more centralized you become in this kind of like global brain of the flow of ideas, insights, facts, provided, <laughs> provided you take care of your relationships, because all of this stuff flows through relationships. So going back to your excellent Wix report, um, uh, you know, what I try to do when I see things like this cross my desk is I try to reward the person in one way or another. So get in touch with them and say, tell them what I liked and maybe some things I didn't like about the report, try and add value to the report. You know, like in your case, I would offer to connect you to, or to try to connect you with this person who's very central to the WordPress ecosystem. He might give you a variant viewpoint that would be valuable to you. But why to make, in this case, uh, Ironhold Capital feel like it's a good idea to keep Guy Spear in the loop when they have good ideas because Guy Spear acts in a way that helps Ironhold Capital to do its job better. Therefore, I'm more central. Therefore, I'm more likely to be to have the insight, to have the in possession of the facts and to be in possession of the insight that, say, Wix is a growing moat business, a shrinking moat business, but we're acting with probabilities. And I think that underlying your question is a, is a, is a lovely, sincere, um, and earnest intent to get to the gold nugget answer, because then we could just take that answer and get on with our lives and do our job 
and you know dispatch the problem and take seize the responsibility that has been foisted upon us and unfortunately the world is not that way it's uh one you know in a certain way we're looking for the clearing in the jungle looking for the clearing in the forest and it's like show me where the clearing in the forest is where is the sunlight because i just want to go there because that's where i'm supposed to go and the answer is no you just got to keep foraging and you got to keep figuring out your way towards the sunlight you may never get there that may it may not exist but you just got you just keep keep the work of doing it and my point to you is that the work the nature of the work is constantly changing so we have to apply our full resources of intelligence capacity to understand the world as it shapes and unfolds itself uh deal with new insights and facts and change our strategy as 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 the circumstances change with the simple idea that we all know that we want to buy good moats at decent prices and and then it's like yeah but how and and effectively to summarize my answer i'm saying is by continuing the search and being as intelligent as you possibly can and as resourceful as you possibly can with what you have in front of you and i guess here's the empowering thought for uh, you know ironhold capital and anybody who's listening is that there's this perception that if only you know i was you know if i if only guy spear had given me the correct answer then i'd have the keys to the golden kingdom and then i'd be in that oasis in the middle of the desert or i'd be in that beautiful clearing in the middle of this dark and rainforest where i can see the sun and i know what what's up and what's down and where's left and where's right and i think that my answer to you is that even the people you perceive are in that very beautiful happy zone they're actually just scrabbling around like the rest of us and so you might as well get used to doing the same thing get used to foraging and from our perspective where warren buffett is does feel like he's in in an oasis or it does feel like and he's certainly at the center of flows of knowledge insight and of information that are vastly vastly superior to anything that we've got but that's not his subjective feeling he's still struggling through the forest like the rest of us and what you really need to do is enjoy that struggle because it's always going to be there and um and you know last thought on that front and it kind of goes back to a previous theme is that i think that this, the the way i've shaped the struggle for me with this process of working is something i find supremely enjoyable i mean i just really enjoy the process of doing it i enjoy the process of discovering noting down my thoughts and you know the kind of thing that i do so so there's a part of my library here i'm going to step away for a second but this might be fun on the video so one of the ways in which um and i'll pull out the annual report for you to see in a second that i just pulled off the shelf that i kind of take care of my future self is that there is a some of the companies i come across where i say it's a really interesting company and i want to make sure i look at it every year i'm not sure i want to own it and i'm not sure i'm ready to do all the work on it that would be necessary right now but i want to make sure that i remember to look at it and so i'll go and buy a share or two in the company and then uh, you know i know that i'm going to receive their annual report because i'm a shareholder and i've clicked off on charles schwab that uh, i don't want anything sent to me electronically so it comes in physical form so there's a section here behind me of uh, reports that i haven't yet torn through but um that's veris which is a company that i don't own shares of but i believe that i noticed the berkshire hathaway owns shares of it and i was trying to understand more of it so you know uh, uh and i can't do this in real time cuz it would waste everybody's time but 
Um, uh, the, the first thing I'm doing looking at it is it's not clear to me that the, the annual letter, I'm trying to work out if the annual letter was written by the PR um, or if it was written by the, uh, by the CEO, the kind of like Jamie Dimon style or Warren Buffett style. But, but what I'll then do is that, so this is, a, I'm just going to give an example of this. This is, this is the um, proxy statement, but, but I will, and I'm just going to do this for, I've just torn off the back page. It's a blank page. But I'll make notes on my conclusions on the blank page, and then that goes into the later pile. And so I'll come up and I'll, I'll remember that I took notes, or I'll tear out the letter, or I'll tear out the balance sheet. And um, so, you know, related to Verisk, I mean, obviously, one of the questions is, what's the intrinsic value? Uh, how big is the moat? Is the moat shrinking or growing? And I may have written down notes as to um, how I might go about acquiring that knowledge. And I've kind of placed it for a future date. And between now and the future date, you know, you might have not sent me a report on Wix. You might have sent me a report on um, on Verisk. And then I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Those guys like Verisk. Hey, have you considered? Or let's see why they think it's a wide or growing business. So uh, in a certain way, I feel very bad, Siddharth and Paul, because I'm giving non-answers to your answers to your questions every time you give me a question i'm like yeah that's a very difficult question let me tell you how difficult it is let me tell you how I've, i haven't been able to solve it but here's how i'm trying to solve it so there's another example and you're asking great questions to which there are no easy answers <laughs> well i mean i love it you know it's a great source of learning for us especially and um you know the one thing we've noticed in our investment processes, when we speak to management teams, although all the information is already there, we already know what to expect to an extent, there's a wide variance in terms of uh, the certainty I get from um, speaking to different managers, which is some of them pretty much and this is, they don't disclose any further information, obviously, but some of them are pretty much the transcript or the annual report, just an uh, audio, basically, when you, when you speak to them. And some of them seem to have uh, more of a strategic view or more of a insight-based view that we may not have gleaned from reading the financials. So... My question to you would be, when you speak to management teams, uh, first of all, when do you speak to them in your process? Is it before you do the research or after you've done your research? And what are you looking for? Because all the information is already public. Or when you speak to them, what are you uh, hoping to get out of them? Yeah, and uh, so the first thing I need to say is that in my book, I my statement was don't speak to management which um, i've said it multiple times but i disagree with that i think one should speak to management uh, very briefly uh, speaking to management is a very very powerful tool it's not something that all investors have because they may not have access they may just have access to the transcripts for example before regulation fd in the united states many investors simply didn't have access to management that's not the case now but there's all sorts of color that one gets if one's in the same room as them and therefore 
one can get very, very badly and seriously misled. The way I describe it now is that speaking to management is a bit like wielding a um, chainsaw. Chainsaws can be very damaging if you apply them to your leg, but extreme, extremely useful when uh, cutting down tree trunks. So be aware of the tool that you're using, apply it in the right direction and in the right way. Um, I think that, uh, but I, having said all of that, um, I, I've never ceased to be surprised at moments in the unfolding of a company's life in which, for one reason or another, the CEO steps down and um, you get a new CEO uh, or you get a new key employee, uh, chief CX, though, if you like, CFO, COO. And sometimes these are the founding members of the company. I mean, you know, uh, this company that I don't own shares of, but I've followed a company called AO World, uh, which is a distributor of white goods in Europe. Uh, the founder stepped down at one point, and there's a company that uh, I've been following at a distance called Trupanion, where the founder is an incredible guy and is very much in charge, but I do worry about when he might step down uh, and whether that's, so I think that this idea of saying, well, I really want to have the reasons why I'm investing in this business to be separate to the personality of the management, I think is an important insight. So speaking to management should not be, so lead to a situation where I love the company because I love the guy running it today. Would we love, or would those people who love, have loved Netflix in the past or who who do love Netflix now, how would they feel if um, Reed Hastings was not in charge? So that's really, really important. I think another thing that's extraordinarily important is that remember that the management, the manager sits in an office like the rest of us does and speaks on the phone, uh, reads documents, writes emails, and meets with people from time to time. And yes, has access to the company's internal accounts uh, and budgets and sales figures. And uh, so they, they do have an awful lot of more information and insight to their disposal, but that is accompanied, that is interpreted with a model of the world that the manager has, that the CEO has, and, um, and that that model may be coloring massively his or her interpretation of what is going on which may be the reality and it may not be the reality and it may be to our advantage. I mean, I think if you had, you're invested with Andy Grove of Intel through much of the life of Intel uh, and, and his mantra is only the paranoid survive, you're probably in a good place. His model of the world, you know, is, is, a, is a useful and an effective model uh, to be interpreting the data that is coming into him uh, rather than perhaps a model of the world that is a more kind of some good Samaritan from the New Testament in which everybody means well and does well. Um, so uh, so I, I worry about speaking to a manager who's utterly convinced and highly intelligent. I mean, all these people are always highly intelligent, is, is very, very effectively and capably gathering and analyzing and drawing conclusions from data that they're receiving, which is not data that we're receiving. and um, they're coming to very intelligent, reasonable conclusions on that data that just happen to be wrong. And so with all the good intent in the world, uh, so that, that, you know, that I, I think that a view of the world in which, um, 
and forgive me for kind of like going back to these kind of jungle and forest analogies to realize that the CEO of the business is just another guy storming around the jungle uh, and another guy who's trying to figure out a path, another guy who, who's doing his best to get directions. And um, I think that I'm, I'm more interested and willing to deal with the guy either where the company is in such a clear groove that it's just freaking obvious what they need to do to execute. And there are businesses, many businesses like that, and it's great to be in those businesses. Um, but where, where also there's, a, there's an element of, I don't know that this is the right path, but I'm actively like you trying to figure out uh, what, how to get to the promised land. And we know, and 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 actually, to, you know, let's be clear. There's some managers for whom the promised land is not our promised land. There's a misalignment of interests in one way or another. But that, but the alignment of interests is not enough. And even to have a clear strategy. I mean, the fact that the, you know, the, you you have the the CEO. He's looking at his compass and he's saying, I know where True North is, and my compass says True North is over there. And you you can't have no way of knowing whether his compass is is faulty or not. Rather to be with the manager says, look. Obviously, we're trying to get to True North, so you know, to kick off that. You're both, you both, know, you have to be clear on that. And yeah, I've got my compass, and I'm trying to use my compass, but I've also got these other irons in the fire, and got these other strategies to get to True North. And actually, if all these fail, I have all these other things I'm going to try. But then you want to know that you know, and he might leave, or he might die, or he might, um, one reason or another, is no longer associated with the business. So the underlying vehicle's got to be something that is going to be carried forward even without that CEO. So talking to management, dealing with the management is a, is a highly, highly treacherous thing that I still, I, I will stand by my comment that I'm not saying don't do it, but, but you know, all of those caveats, enormous amounts of caveats. And as you can see, I actually, I realized in talking to the two of you that I've become so much more aware of the, you know, I, I've up to this point, I've I've massively massively underestimated the uncertainty of our knowledge of the world, how little we actually know, and um, we have to be really really um, modest and careful about how we deal with our insights. We have to deal with our insights with with this kind of modesty that says you know, I may be completely misguided and wrong about this insight, and that goes for management teams as well. And um, don't be misled by their undue confidence and be aware that confidence goes through cycles when you're a management team that's thrown up a string of successful years and your share prices through the roof. Um, you know, you become pretty confident that your model of the world is correct. And maybe for a while your model of the world is spot on and the data that you're analyzing and receiving is exactly the correct interpretation, but the world is a strange place and suddenly it's no longer the correct model of the world, and suddenly, you know, the world has changed, and 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 actually, you only discovered two years too late. I'll just give you briefly one example of that. In um, in the case of this uh, zinc recycling company, Horsehead, the management team were extremely familiar with. Uh, so they they had a huge investment in a in in a um, restructuring of the underlying chemical process by which the underlying process by which they recycled zinc and the original process was using 
blast furnace, which is a very, very well understood process in metallurgy, which involves mixing your raw materials with a, uh, a fuel, usually as a very specific grade of coal. And when you, when, you, when you cook all of those things, a bit like making soup, uh, you get what you want out and at different levels of, you know, out of the bottom comes slag, but out of the top comes the particular metal that you want. But they were transitioning from uh, that kind of um, burning process to an electrochemical process in which rather than mixing it up with coal, you, uh, you take your raw materials and you dissolve them in a, uh, in a fluid which has electrolytic properties, and you run electricity through that um, fluid, and then you get the results you want on the anodes and the cathodes. And so, you know, two very different processes, but, and, and this is, I'm kind of summarizing and interpreting an awful lot of history and data and a lot of complexity in a simple way, but I think it reaches at something like this. And so we have this zinc recycling company with a management team that has deep understanding of zinc and how, how one recycles it. And, and they went into a world where they believed that they had all the knowledge to convert their process from this um, old burning-based process to an electrolytic process. And um, they ran into a whole bunch of issues that they never had could have forecast at the beginning. And so their model of the world had to change into one where they realized we did not know quite what we were undertaking in converting uh, from the burning process, from the blast furnace process to the electrolytic process. Uh, and they had to update that model. That I think was a genuine, uh, that was a, a kind of a genuine understandable mistake on their part. Uh, you know, the answer was I've worked with zinc my whole life. I know everything about zinc. I've visited electrolytic plants. Ah, but have you built an electrolytic plant? You know, yeah, but I know everything about zinc. At the time, the, the idea that there was a whole separate area of knowledge on how to run an electrolytic plant was not part of their understanding. And um, you know, in the same way that the first time somebody who invests in a leveraged company gets hit by uh, some event that kind of like takes out a significant chunk of the value of the company because you realize what leverage does, until that point, your model of the world was one in which leverage was unimportant and then you get kind of so management teams can have the same the same issues on how they grasp reality and the models they use to grasp reality so when you're reading a conference call or when you're participating in one or you see the transcript do you really have a clear idea do i really have a clear idea of what models how the management are interpreting the data am i confident that they have the appropriate humility in terms of how they're interpreting the data. These are all kind of things that one wants to keep with one, which, you know, and the, the conclusion, Siddharth, the summary of my question is, or my answer to my question is, it's complicated. Definitely talk to management, but have all of these ideas and possibly many more that, and probably many more that I haven't expressed in terms of, you know, secondary and tertiary type analyses of what is actually going on. So, since your lunch with Mr. Buffett, um, you know, where yeah. you lunch with Mr. Buffett along with Mr. Pabrai, how has your relationship evolved since then? And what, what were your takeaways then? And how have they changed or maybe you've added to them over the years? Yeah. One thing that I should tell you about that famous lunch with Warren Buffett is that 
the launch happened in 2000 and, uh, 2008. And so we're now 2022. So if I'm not mistaken, that's 14 years hence. And I think that it's a, it's a, for me, it's a sign of, um, I don't want to say failure, but, uh, that I'm not, you know, that I have some ways to go to match the expectations and desires that I have for my life that I think that it would be a shame if in uh, 20 years time, let's say that what is written, but the, the first thing that's said about me after I'm introduced is launch with Warren Buffett. And if we talk about Monish for a second, I think that at around the time that we met and uh, for a while I was on his advisory board for the Dakshana Foundation and uh, we were traveling around India um, visiting scholars' homes and also uh, visiting JNV's Javod Navoya Vidalnya, these kind of um, schools for underprivileged uh, children from scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. And Monish says to me, that it would be very nice if one day he's remembered not as a great investor, but as the founder of this amazing charitable organization called Dakshana. And I think that that was a wonderful goal to have mentioned to me at the time. And I think that in many ways that's come true. I mean, uh, there are all sorts of, I mean, when, when Warren Buffett is writing letters saying that uh, many, many CEOs and of charitable organizations would be envious of Dakshana, I think that that is an extraordinary thing. But um, uh, so, go, so having said that, and, and having not escaped the, the, the kind of like the, the Warren Buffett launch in my bio yet, what what are what are the how's the relationship involved? How's where where are we right now? Look, I think that the power of meeting one person, I can reaffirm that meeting one person can change your life. And if if any of us have the instinct that a meeting with a particular person uh, will give us extraordinary insights and wisdom. It is not a dumb thing to invest an enormous amount of one's personal resources to try and get that meeting in a reasonable way. And um, uh, so that doesn't mean um, spend your birthright, your pension fund, your everything. Don't be dumb about it. But if you can take a sum of money that you could totally afford to lose at the casino, let's say, or to invest, to 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 spend on a holiday or that you would never get back, and you say, well, rather than spending this money on a holiday, I'm going to spend it on meeting some person that you have the instinct could be life changing, then I think it's extraordinarily worth doing. And uh, my experience with Warren Buffett is an example of that. I would tell you that I recently read this book by Michael Ovitz. I think it's called Ovitz by Ovitz. He was a Hollywood super agent. And I was really struck by the extraordinary human intelligence EQ that this man has. And uh, I said to myself uh, that if, if I were able to sit down for a dinner with him, that could be life-changing for me in that he would teach me lessons just in the meeting, of him, in, in meeting with him about how to deal with the world of people, I would have really liked to have carried his briefcase. So I can be quite certain that in many aspects of human interactions, uh, Michael Lovitz is way better than Warren Buffett. Uh, and um, so, you know, and I'm not saying that Warren Buffett is not a genius in his human interactions, but I'm pretty convinced that there are things that Warren Buffett 
wouldn't know how to do around people that Michael Ovitz does and the insights Michael Ovitz has around people, especially people with big egos, which movie stars tend to have. So, um, you know, and so I had a conversation with a friend the other day where she said, well, actually, I can arrange that meeting. And I said, oh, I'd be really interested. And, you know, I'm, I don't know if there's a price tag there, but I'm based on my experience with Warren Buffett. If, if the price tag is a reasonable price tag relative to my budget and other priorities, then uh, I think my answer to you or anybody listening is don't assume automatically that a high price tag to meet somebody is not worth it. Don't compare it to meeting your friend. Um, the world of relationships and the world of learning is, to use a phrase that Nassim Taleb taught me, is not mediocristan. In a world, mediocristan is like people's heights. Everybody's on average about the same height. To, and standard deviation is not that great. But the distribution of wealth, for example, is enormous. People can be multiple. You can't, I could not be a multiple of somebody else's height. Uh, but I could be, but wealth can be multiples, many multiples, many zeros, orders of magnitude. And so the quality of a meeting is that kind of extremist on world, in which if you have the hunch, go ahead and do it. You have no idea. I once uh, flew from Zurich to California for somebody's birthday party. And I think that that was not a dumb thing to do because there were people at that birthday party I would never have met. And it's not that they then went invested in my fund or anything of the sort is that they now somehow I'm, I'm drawn close to them in my universe. So, um, you know, I, I would say that, and, and there's another lesson here. I mean, lessons are countless, but uh, a key lesson that I learned, I learned more from Monish than I did from Warren in all sorts of ways. I can make that argument um, because I spent much more time with Monish and in the context that Monish came into that lunch with, better equipped to understand how to have a productive relationship with Warren, whereas I did not have an understanding of how to do that. There's a whole area of knowledge that one can have around dealing with people who have less time and who are more powerful in wealth and in other things than we are. And I've, it's a conversation that I'll, I'll, I'll do it now because I've had to do it multiple times with interns. Interns, people very early in their careers do not understand uh, the asymmetric nature of uh, calls on people's time and attention. So in an incident that happened not long ago in my office, the intern stands at the door and is waiting for my eyes to rise. And, and I was very focused on something that I was trying to complete, but I felt the pressure of him standing there. And so then I, I turned to say, what's up? And he says, good morning. I was like, is that it? <laughs> and he says, yeah, good morning. And, you know, and, and this time I was in a slightly bad mood. I, I, I was not feeling very well, but I kind of decided to make a point of it. And I kind of stopped and I said, do you have anything else for me? And he says, no, I just wanted to wish you good morning. And I said, I, I kind of like readdressed, helped him to reassess what he was doing. I said, look, um, you have no idea what I was doing. And I know you meant well, but in the, process of insisting on taking my attention to say good morning to you, you had the implicit assumption that your desire to deliver a good morning to me and a friendly and well-intentioned good morning was more important than whatever it was that I was doing. And 
in the in in spite of the uncertainty of what that might be, you insisted, and so now you've got my attention. Uh, but but you know he was well-meaning, really well-meaning. But but he had no, no he had never been exposed to the idea that helping people manage their attention in an office or work environment is a key aspect of what you do when you're in a work environment. And something as simple as trying to insist on telling somebody a good morning when their eyes are not meeting yours is a very bad idea. So why on earth does this come into my conversation with on, on the aftermath of the lunch with Warren Buffett? Because multiple conversations with Monish where I'd kind of say, oh, a friend of mine heard that I had lunch with Warren Buffett and now he wants to lay this opportunity in front of him. What do you think? You know, and, and the answer came back from Monish, you know, summarizing many conversations. Do you really want to risk whatever goodwill that you have built up with Warren and his assistant to lay this proposal in front of him? Is that really going to be a benefit in his life and take all of your insights and intelligence, all of your intelligence and apply it to all the insights you have about Warren Buffett how do you think this is going to land? And what is it going to do of his perception of you? So that learning curve that I went up, which once I'd gone up with up it with Warren Buffett, um, helped me to deal with all sorts of people who are more powerful in time and uh, who are more wealthy in time, in, in, in power and money, and who have far less time and attention than I do. So that's a kind of a very, very simple thing. But it's just extraordinarily valuable. And um, just to, in terms of the relationship to Warren Buffett, I mean, I once called up Monish to wish him a happy birthday. And he was like, don't wish me a happy birthday. I like, I don't need that. I really don't. We're good enough friends. Let's leave it alone. You know, if we're in the same city, we'll go and have a drink or we'll go and celebrate in some way, but then just leave the, leave the issue alone. I would not call Warren Buffett up and wish him a happy birthday. The nature of my relationship to Warren Buffett, just to be clear, because I think this is a reflective of many similar kinds of relationships, is that he, I'm one of many thousands of people that he's met over his lifetime. And I, I have no doubt, based on the correspondence that we've had, that he likes me and respects me, but there's no specific business that he and I can do together. And he has a long list of friends. Uh, that for all sorts of reasons, I'm not at the top of that long list of friends. And uh, provided I respect his time and I give him the space to be, he's very, very happy to have me in his universe. And who knows how the world changes? So he's got many, many, many relationships like that. But if I were to abuse that uh, in, in even the very, very slightest way, I would be... Um, Sure, I'd be erased, but but any any opportunity to engage with him would be out the window. So my I have you know infrequent correspondence with his assistant, but I try to respect her time. She has a lot of demands on her time, and uh, uh, in the years shortly after the lunch, we were um, invited to his his uh, uh, after Berkshire brunch. It was um, an incredible experience with some amazing people there and um, where there was a short, sometimes a short hello to Warren. Uh, and the key thing that I would have really liked to have achieved by now, there's a tall order, but the, the way to really kind of show my appreciation for Warren and say thank you to him would be to deliver him a nice, beautiful $50 billion valuation wide moat 
excellent business on a plate for him to buy from private hands than um, a well-known public company that I think would sit really beautifully inside of Berkshire Hathaway is a, a European company called IKEA. It's all over the United States. It's um, a different business model to Nebraska Furniture Mart, but it's a uh, very, very interesting, extraordinary business. And it turns out that somebody I know quite well in Zurich has actually had used to have many close personal interactions with the founder, Ingmar Kamprad, and I've been in touch with some of the directors where I've had informal conversations about whether it would ever be possible to do that because it would be a lifelong wish and dream of mine. And uh, I have made no progress at all, quite understandably so, because they have no interest. The trustees of the charities that control IKEA have no interest in doing a transaction like that. But what's, why do I bring that up in the context of the launch with Buffett is that you know, if, if, for example, for some uh, miraculous reason, I get a call later today that the um, director that I had a very nice opportunity to speak to came back to me and said, you know, actually, we had a discussion in the board, and they are open to a transaction with Warren Buffett. And, um, you know, it's kind of like around XYZ price, then provided the price was not a snowflake type valuation, in which it's kind of like hundreds multiple of revenue as long as it was a reasonable valuation that made sense i i would literally pick up the phone ask to speak to debbie basanic and say debbie here's the conversation i've had with the director um you know this is what he's told me i know you'll want to communicate that to warren obviously i'm available to talk to him to give him color and obviously he can he can engage with him directly you know i would do that and i think that with a very high likelihood, the first call, he, to the extent that it was actually that I'd gotten all my facts and insights straight, um, you know, I'd get a call back pretty quickly to get the background before he put a call in to uh, the directors of the company. So that's how quickly, but that's because I'm thinking carefully about what is Warren Buffett's interest. His interest is to have a peaceful, happy life. His interest is to make Berkshire Hathaway the best it possibly can. If I align myself with that, then um, then I'm very much you know there, and uh, the, the the interaction would be fast and real. But if I just want to kind of wish him take his time by wishing him a happy birthday along with thirty thousand other people, or if I just want to take his time period because I want to show my face so that he sees my face, but there's nothing serious that can come out of it. Uh, then I would damage that relationship very quickly. So, you know, I, I'm not going into insights about, you know, how to run a charity, how to run your life, how to debt or no debt. But I think that the reason why I take my time with you, Sadar, on that is that I think that if you're listening to this podcast or to this conversation and any of my words, I, I hope that my words don't strike you as surprising, but this to make you aware if you're in the position of this intern, of the extraordinary asymmetries that can exist in human relationships and how the people who are most effective understand and work with those asymmetries. And if you don't understand them, you can get yourself into hot water and end the relationship very quickly, even though it would be a shame to end it. I think that's one of the most profound and most widely applicable lessons that I learned from that lunge. With the help of really the teacher, in fact, the relationship with Warren Buffett was the classroom. 
But the teacher in the classroom, in my case, was Monish Pabrai, and I'm extraordinarily grateful to, Mon to Monish for teaching me some of these very basic things that I did not learn at business school. I did not learn in consulting. And in part, it's because I have, you know, I'm a very personable and I am quite capable of making my way through a cocktail party, but there's an element to me that I, I don't want to call myself Asperger's. I'm certainly not, but there's a kind of a, I do have some kind of missing module there when it comes to really understanding these things. wonderful i mean uh, that would be a great note to end on we had something similar with me and paul with mr joe greenblatt who's a legendary hedgeman manager himself he was um kind enough to invite us to his hedgeman and then we learned a great deal there and so he didn't have to do it and you know there's certainly no reason why he would choose to spend his time but uh, he did and uh, we are very thankful to him and uh, you know that's i think pretty much in line with what you just mentioned which is the respect for time and uh, providing value to in any which way uh, one can to the mentors they seek so you know, i would like to end on that note and uh, you know it's uh, been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and we're honored to have you on the show and hope to have you back again and um, for investors who are interested in Aquamarine Fund and, you know, how can they reach out and, you know, perhaps, you know, how do they go about that process? I think, yeah. That's extraordinarily kind. Uh, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I've been impressed to talk to both of you. Uh, and thank you for the kind questions about how people should engage with me. Before I get to that, I just want to give a, an additional note on your meeting with Joel Greenblatt is that it is it is very intelligent and smart for Joel Greenblatt to meet with you. So he didn't do it out of an act of pure charity and kindness, I believe. You can't, you know, I'm not Joel Greenblatt, so I don't know. But but in a certain way, and neither did Warren Buffett engage with me and Monish after the Berkshire after our charity lunch, just out of pure charity and kindness, or out of in a certain way, kind of like pure friendship. I think that they were both engaging in a very, very smart strategy, which is that you know I was talking earlier in our conversation about putting one's oneself at the center of an and a flow, a rich and diverse flow of inputs and information and insights and sources. And so when Joel Greenblatt meets with you or when Warren Buffett maintains the relationship, it's because that they are both aware that nobody knows where the next idea or insight will come from. The world is a complex place. And so they know that developing relationships with people like Ironhold Capital, Paul Gray and Siddharth Singhai is um, a smart thing to do. But now they're counting on Paul and Siddharth to um, be intelligent about that interaction. Because they'll, you know, they'll slice you off at the knees if, uh, if you're not intelligent about it. And they want you to benefit and they want to hold the potential the potential for benefit in the future for themselves in terms of insight, resources, thoughts, ideas, analyses. And um, so, so, you know, it was not out of pure kindness, but my exhortation, and I think that you guys understand the lesson extraordinarily well, but to the listener is that when you get those opportunities, use them. Um, there's a there's this uh, book of Jewish wisdom called Pirkei Avot, sayings of the fathers, and one of the sayings is, um, raise many students and i kind of like raise many students in part because the more students you have 
the more opportunities arise for you later in life. So just a you know, closing thought on that. Um, in terms of being in touch with me, uh, I am proud to tell you guys and to tell the audience when it listens to this that I am not as active on Twitter as I used to be. I think that Twitter is a very useful tool for learning in public. And so one can share one's thoughts in a concise way. And if you curate your feed, you could get some very, very interesting insights and connections to people back. So a very simple way to engage with me is to follow me on Twitter. My handle is G Spear, my, the initial of my first name and all of the letters of my last name. So feel free to find me there. And um, I have a personal website, guyspear.com. I have a newsletter, an email newsletter that goes these days to around 15,000 people. I produce it three or four times a year. I have some original writing, some links, some thoughts that I try to send as infrequently. I only, I only send it out when I have, feel like I have something new and real to say. I try not to rehash old content. And uh, for regulatory reasons at the time, I had set that up as a separate site to my funds website. So my funds website is aquamarinefund.com and uh, has all sorts of um, warnings and click boxes to say that you're accredited and you know um, there be dragons here you're in you're you're going into the territory of an a fund that is not registered with the SEC or anywhere else it's a private fund you know uh, buyer beware type of deal and of course you're welcome to find me there as well but I think that the most informal way is on Twitter. And I'm, you can find me on, I think I'm available on LinkedIn and I'm happy to take inbound connections. Although just to be clear, and again, there's a little bit of wisdom and insight here that I've learned from a wonderful podcast or interview that was done between David Perel and Matt Kobach called How to Crush It on Twitter. It could be How to Crush It on social media. So I'm very open to accepting inbound connections but I'm very aggressive at cutting them out if they're not value added. So, um, you know, if you, if you're going to, if I identify you as being noise rather than signal, then I'll, then I'll, you know, in the same way that if Warren Buffett was to identify me as being noise rather than signal, he'd shut down, shut down this particular neuron to use a brain analogy pretty quickly. So happy to accept inbound connections, but, um, but please provide, please at least try to provide more signal noise Siddharth and Paul thank you so much for having me on your show uh, I'm super impressed with some of the previous guests and uh, like Anthony Scaramucci uh, like uh, Greenwell Greenblatt uh, I understand you've got Monish Pabrai coming up you'll have fun asking him about his relationship to me I hope we correspond to each other I'll be seeing him in a few weeks in Austin Texas but um, thank you for having me on your show I'm wishing you much success Thank you and thank you for taking the time. It was an uh, absolute pleasure.